You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Okay, join me in your Bibles, if you would, please, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's, that's where we will be today. So we, we will take a break from our study in Ephesians to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in verses 35 through 49. And while you are making your way there, allow me to say a couple of things that I, that I wrote down to remind myself to say the first time I stood here before you, but I, I failed to do it. So you'll have to forgive me for that. So first of all, welcome to those of you who were watching and worshiping with us online. So welcome to you and happy Easter and Resurrection Sunday to you out there. The second thing that I, I failed to mention to you is you may have noticed Jacob is not here this morning. And uh, so uh, Jacob and Stephanie, well, Stephanie, okay, gave birth to their, their son yesterday. And I, yeah, so, amen. <laughs> Uh, as far as I know, I have not yet heard the, the child's name. Uh, I know it's a boy, and I know he weighed over nine pounds. So anyway, um, so there's that. And uh, I don't know if they're going to call him Mephibosheth or what they're going to call him, but they're looking for an Old Testament name. That one gets my vote. So in any case... Um, if you have an opportunity to maybe send a text or a call, uh, congratulate, uh, congratulations to uh, Jacob and Stephanie. Reach out to them and, and do that. So anyway, with that out of the way, let's read God's Word so I can get out of the way now and let's hear God speak. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, And the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
and is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word and uh, the privilege that I have to stand here to preach it, to proclaim it to your people, and the great privilege that I have to proclaim the wonderful truth of your gospel and the wonderful truth of of the resurrection. Father, I just pray that that you would guide us into the truth of your word this morning. Pray that you would give me the words to speak, that you would enable me to perform this task in the power of your spirit, so that we may all walk away from this place today strengthened and encouraged having heard you speak through your word. All of these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ died on a cross. This is an historical fact. I know of no serious serious historian today who would discredit that. It is an historical fact that Jesus died on a cross. Then his body was laid in a tomb. But on the third day, his body was no longer in the tomb. His body, of course, we believe, was raised from the dead. This is the doctrine of the resurrection. The Bible teaches that at the end of time, when Jesus Christ returns, God will raise the bodies of all the dead of all time, just as he raised Jesus' body from the dead. Throughout the ages, people have asked, is the resurrection believable? Is it reasonable to believe that? I mean, after all, Walter, don't you know what happens to the body when it goes down into the grave? Don't you realize, Walter, that our bodies disintegrate in the grave? And, and what about those whose, whose bodies were burned in tragic accidents or, or whose bodies were cremated or those who were lost at, at sea? How does all of that work, and how can disintegrated bodies be raised from the dead? Those are are fair questions to ask, really, in my mind. You know, how does this thing work? And, And these are exactly the type of questions that Paul is actually responding to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I draw your attention to verse 35, where he says, But someone will ask, which means someone has already asked. Someone has raised the objection. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So these two questions are very specific objections that Paul is going to answer in this text in successive order. So the the first question is, how are the dead raised? And really, it's, you know, how is this possible, that kind of thing? So he's going to answer that question first, and then there's a second question which is, with what kind of body do they come? And then he's going to answer that question. I submit to you that there is actually a third question. It's not stated explicitly in the, in the text, but it is certainly implied because Paul answers the question. And this third question is this, Paul, please tell me, why is the resurrection necessary? You need to understand something about the people in Corinth. These people are, are Greeks, 
Greek philosophy of the time taught that this body is bad, this body is evil. The, everything the Greeks wanted to do, they, they wanted to escape the body. And so they believed that when the, when the body died, the soul went on into eternity. Which, by the way, we affirm 100%. That, that is 100% Christian theology. When, when this body ceases to live, the immaterial part of me, the soul, it goes on. Paul says elsewhere, it is better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But the, the Greeks, they saw absolutely no future whatsoever for the body. They wanted to escape the body and they wanted nothing else to do with the body ever in eternity. They're like, yippee, I'm done with this body. So quite naturally, they have this question, Paul, you're telling me that my soul, right, one day is going to be rejoined with this body. Why is that necessary? Let me go back and fill in, fill in some blanks. Yes, we believe the soul departs the body when, when the body dies. When Jesus Christ comes back and God raises the dead of all time, at that point in time, we believe as Christians that the soul in the body, the resurrected body, is then rejoined and prepared for all eternity. The Greeks wanted nothing to do with the body in eternity. So quite naturally, they have heard Paul explain this and they are asking, why in the world is this even necessary? Paul, if my soul is going to live in eternity, is it really necessary to have the body along with it? And oh, by the way, what will that body be like? Because Paul, I don't want this body for all eternity. Can I get a witness? It's a fair objection, isn't it? I don't, I, I don't want this body. They didn't want that body either. Okay? And, and, and furthermore, Paul, please, please tell me, you know, how is this thing even possible? So Paul is answering all three of these questions. We're going to look at each one one by one. So the first question then is this, how are the dead raised? Beginning in verse 36, Paul begins to answer this question. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So here Paul is talking about a seed that goes down into the ground. He's using an analogy from gardening. So when a seed goes into the ground and germinates, it decomposes, and then it is transformed into new life that then springs up out of the ground. In the same way, Paul says our bodies must first die. They must go down into the ground like a seed and, and decompose. And then, like a seed, our dead bodies are, are ready to, to be transformed into new life and to come shooting up out of the ground. It's, we can understand this analogy. He goes on in verse 37, And, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of, of wheat or of some other grain. So when you plant a seed, you've seen all of this before. How many of you, have, how many of you would say that you're a gardener? I, I knew I had some of you in here. Come on. So when you plant a seed, the plant that comes from that seed, it looks nothing like the seed, does it? It's marvelously transformed, and so it is with our resurrected body. So I'll use the example of a, of a watermelon seed. You plant a watermelon seed down in the ground, and then what comes up out of the ground? This big old plant that crawls along the ground here, and it, and it produces these big old watermelons. It looks absolutely nothing like the seed itself. And so it will be with our resurrected bodies. But having said that, church, our resurrected bodies will still be human bodies. Look at what he says in verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its, 
its own body. So when you plant a wheat seed, wheat grows. When you plant a kernel of corn, corn grows. When you plant a watermelon seed, watermelon grows. So in the same way, when you plant a human body, guess what comes up out of the ground? A human body. That's all he's saying. It's pretty simple stuff. Even a caveman like me can get it, all right? It will be, it will be transformed. It will be different, but it will still be your body, and it will be a human body. Now, the point here is that the doctrine of the resurrection is fully compatible with what we see in everyday life. It's fully compatible with nature. When you look at a tree, when you look at a potted plant, when you look at flowers, when you, when you look at corn growing in the field or wheat growing in the field, you are looking at evidence of the resurrection. Every single day on God's green earth, seeds go down into the ground where they decompose, yet on that very same spot, new life emerges totally different from the appearance of the seed. So it's as if Paul looks at this audience, he goes, you guys, you don't think the resurrection is possible? You do really, he calls them foolish. Did you, I didn't include that, but he, he, you fools, he says. And he, he only calls them fools because they're Christians. Right? They shouldn't believe that this is so impossible. He goes, you guys, you don't think the resurrection is possible? Look around at nature and you'll see evidence for the resurrection everywhere. Now, this is important for us, for people who live in a modern world today, because the world in which we live is dominated by the modern sciences, the, you know, the sciences, the natural sciences that seek to explain the world in which we live, usually with the presupposition that there is no God. They just try to explain the world as it is through natural processes. One of the leading theories of modern science, of course, is the theory of evolution, and what I'm about to tell you in regards to evolution, I have confirmed in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a man who has a Ph.D. in biology. In biology. He's also an atheist. But I had this conversation with him about the theory of evolution because I, I was curious to know if what I had been taught was actually true. And he confirmed that everything I had been taught was true. So, according to the theory of evolution, if you take it all the way back to its logical beginnings, the theory of evolution would hold that once upon a time on this earth, there was nothing but dead, non-living material. No living organisms whatsoever on this planet. Just dead, rock, dirt, dust, whatever. No life forms at all. But then suddenly dramatically shall we even say miraculously but of course the evolutionist would not say miraculously but somehow some way the evolutionist believes that from this non-living material came forth life they cannot explain how it happened that's why it is just a theory because it cannot be reproduced in a laboratory don't ask them how, because they don't, they don't know. But somehow, someway, non-living material brought forth life. And in fact, they would tell you that all living organisms on this planet, whether it be the trees, the plants, the human beings, the aquatic animals, the beasts of the field, or the, the birds of the air, that we are all related, that we have all descended from that first life form, whatever it is that came to be from that non-living material. I bring this to your attention because I know another young man 
who describes himself as an atheist and an evolutionist. And I have heard him say, in regards to the doctrine of the resurrection, he says, I cannot believe in a dead man coming to life. And whenever I hear that, I think to myself, really? Really? Is it really a bridge too far for you to believe in a dead man coming to life when you believe all of that? Beloved, I submit to you that the separation between scientific theory and biblical faith is not as wide as modern science would have us believe. I'm not advocating for evolution, not at all. I too believe that life on this planet came from the non-living dust of the earth. Because the Bible tells me so. The the primary difference, of course, is the agent of creation. The Bible tells us that God created the first human body from the dust of the earth, the non-living material of the earth. And just as God made the first human body from the dust of the earth, He will make our resurrected bodies from the dust of the earth. Whether your body is placed in a box and lowered in the grave, whether your body is cremated or burned in a tragic accident, whether your body is lost at sea, one way or another, your body is going to return to the dust of the earth. And just then, right, like a seed, it's going to be decomposed and it's going to be ready to be transformed into new life. And the very same God who created the very first human body from the dust of the earth is more than capable of recreating and resurrecting your dead body. Can somebody please say amen? Now, there is evidence for this everywhere in nature. When you look at a tree, when you look at a potted plant, when you look at corn in the field, you will see evidence for the resurrection if you are willing to see it. So that's how Paul answers that first question. The second question then is this. Okay, Paul, tell me, with what kind of body do they come? Because I don't want this body for all eternity. Now, I will remind you that Paul has just said that our resurrected bodies will be human bodies. You plant a watermelon seed, watermelon is what comes up out of the ground. When a human body goes into the grave, a human body comes up out of the ground. But our resurrected bodies will be vastly different, and they will have some added non-human qualities. So he begins in verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. God has created many kinds of bodies. He's created human bodies. He's created bodies for beasts of the field. He's created bodies for birds. He's created bodies for fish. And each one of these earthly bodies is uniquely different. What's the point, Paul? The point is God specializes in creating unique bodies. So we see this with all the different types of bodies on earth. Guess what? God has also created heavenly bodies. He says in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. A fun exercise would be for you to go and count the number of times the word glory appears in those two verses. If you don't have time to do it right now, I'll just go ahead and tell you six times. Six times. That's a lot in the span of two verses. And that tells us Paul is zeroing in on that word glory. Every single body that God has created 
has its own unique glory, whether it's a celestial body, whether it's an earthly body. Guess what, church? Our resurrected bodies will have their own unique glory, and glorious shall they be. Look at what he says in verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Are you ready for some good news this morning? Okay, good. Here it is. Your resurrected body will be vastly different from this body in at least four unique ways. First of all, Paul says, it will be imperishable. So this body that I have and the body that you currently possess, it's perishable. Like the milk in your refrigerator. We now drink soy milk. I don't think that stuff ever expires. But some of you still drink regular milk. Right? It's got an expiration date on it. No, it's almond milk, isn't it? Yeah, it never expires. It's good for months, okay? But regular milk, it's not that way. If you're still drinking regular milk, that thing's got an expiration date on it. Your resurrected body, imperishable. No expiration date whatsoever. It will be immune to death and decay. Oh, how glorious that will be. Secondly, the resurrected body, it will be honorable. Paul mentions that our dead bodies are sown in dishonor. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that our, our burial process, our, our funeral process somehow is dishonoring to the body? That's not what he, he intends there. But think about what we do with a burial. At burial, we commit a lifeless body out of our sight, don't we? Because no one wants to look at a decaying body, a decomposing body. No one wants to look at it no one wants to smell it. Speaking of expired milk, when was the last time you checked whether or not it had been expired by, by opening, up, opening it up and, and taking a whiff of it? You don't like to do that, do you? It's much better just to read the date on the card. Yeah, that's, that's out of date. Let's throw that away. No one likes to look at a dead body. No one likes to smell a dead body. So we, we put it out of our, our sight. But our resurrected bodies will be gloriously remade. It will be something to behold. It'll be something to look at. Hallelujah. Please come, Lord Jesus. Let me have this now. But that's not it for now. It'll be something truly worthy of honor. Third, it will be powerful. He says this body is sown in weakness, but the resurrected body, it will be raised in power. Let me tell you a little something about my body. My body is weak. And the older I get, the more aware I am that my body is weak. When I was younger, when I was a teenager, I spent my summers toting lumber for a construction crew. We were framing houses, big, big houses. I, I, all day long, I would tote like two by tens, two by twelves, three quarter inch tongue and groove plywood, eight by eight posts. I would do this all day long in the hot uh, summer of North Carolina, hot and humid. And then I would go home as if I had just been on the couch watching TV all day. I could pick up my surfboard and go surfing. I could do whatever. I could get up the next day and I could do it all over again and my body felt perfectly fine. Now I might spend two hours out in the yard doing some yard work. We, we had a work day here at the church a, a couple of weeks ago. I was out there for about four hours and the next day I could barely get out of bed. I'm not kidding. I'm so, yeah, right? Not... 
Not kidding. This is not the way it used to be when I was younger. And now every year when I go to the doctor, I always get the phone. I'm always waiting for the doctor to, to call me back in a couple of days and let me know the check engine light's on. <laughs> Better bring it in for some servicing. You threw a code. <laughs> it wasn't the way it was when I was, was much younger. So the older we get, the more aware we are of the, the weakness of our human bodies, but our, our resurrected bodies, that they will never grow tired, they will never grow weak, they will, they will never expire, they'll, they'll never break down. Fourth, and finally, Paul says, it will be spiritual. So the body that goes into the grave is a natural body. The body that is raised is a different kind. It's a spiritual body. It's still a body. It's still a, a human body, but it will be a spiritual or a heavenly body. I think this is another way of saying that it's going to be a, a supernatural body. So kind of like Superman. Superman has a supernatural body, but of course, you know, for the kids in the room, Superman's not real, okay? You know, he doesn't really exist. And oh, by the way, Superman may have a supernatural body, but his body still succumbs to things like kryptonite. Not so with our resurrected bodies. The body that Paul describes here is the body that the Lord Jesus Christ now possesses in his resurrected body. In his life, church, Jesus lived in an earthly body just like my body, just like your body. His body was subject to human weakness like our bodies. His body required food, drink, and sleep like our bodies. His body endured physical pain like our bodies. His body eventually succumbed to death and was placed in a tomb just like our bodies. But Jesus' resurrected body was gloriously transformed. It was no longer perishable. It was no longer weak. It was remade into something truly glorious and powerful. And I think we, we can't really fully comprehend what it's going to be like to live in that body. Just try to think about it for just a second. Boy, how wonderful. I, I, I can go to sleep and wake up the next day and fully energized and, and ready to do it all again without any pain whatsoever. Oh my goodness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a body that, that's worth looking at. Oh my, oh my goodness. We really just can't comprehend what that's going to be in our, in our finite minds. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, this will one day be your body. And you need to remember that. The next time you do a hard day's labor and you can't get out of bed the next day, you need to remember, this isn't the body that I'm going to have in eternity. The next time the doctor calls and says, you've thrown a code, the check engine light is on, you need to remember, this current body, it's, it's perishable. But my resurrected body, one day I'm going to have a body that will be imperishable. It will be truly honorable, powerful, and supernatural just like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul now has answered the very first two questions. How does the resurrection work? Paul says, look to nature, you'll see evidence of it. What kind of body will it be? It'll be a supernatural human body. It's going to be great. Now he moves to answer the third and final question. And that question is this, why is the resurrection necessary? So he says in verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. 
Remember, God made Adam from the dust of the earth, and He breathed life into him. The bodies that we currently have, we have inherited from Adam. But the resurrected bodies that we will one day have, they will be inherited from someone else. Verse 45 introduces us to this someone else. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So we live and we die in this natural body of Adam, but our resurrected bodies will be inherited from the second Adam, and the second Adam is simply Jesus. That's all he means here. As Paul continues, now he explains why the second body from the second Adam is necessary. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Again, the first man, that refers to Adam. The second man, the man from heaven, that refers to Jesus. Now he finally gets to the meat of it. Thank you, Paul. All right. He says, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There's a profound theological point that Paul is making here. and It's it's not so easy to pick up on. It's easy to miss. It really is. But the point is, Because we are human, we inherit certain traits from Adam. On one hand, we we inherit this this body of Adam, but we also inherit the sinful nature of Adam. When you go back and you read the Genesis account, in Genesis chapters 1 and 3, you will notice that God created Adam in his image. I think that God intended Adam to reflect the image of God in God's good creation. Everything that God created was perfectly good. Talk about that in just a second. But when Adam fell into sin, he could no longer fully bear the image of God. Furthermore, Christian theology teaches that that when sin entered the world through Adam, it entered through him, and that Adam's sin now has tainted all of creation. It's cursed the world in which we live. You don't have to, to look long at this world to understand that this world is not right. Everybody actually understands that. Whether they're atheist, whether they're Hindu, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Christians, everyone looks at the world and they understand something's not right in this world. Something has gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. What is wrong with this world? Why is there so much disease? Why is there death? Why is there suffering? Why are people so doggone mean? Why do people lie, cheat, steal, and covet? Why do terrorists blow themselves up in airports? Why do tornadoes rip through people's homes? Such questions are foundational to forming one's worldview. A worldview just kind of answers these questions and helps to explain how did we get here and, and where are we going? I believe the Christian faith provides the very best answer to those questions. I've studied the worldview of atheism and naturalism. It doesn't work for me. I've studied the worldviews of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. They don't pass the test. 
I believe a biblical worldview best explains the world as it is today. Why it is the way it is and where we are headed. The world as we know it is not the exact world that God created. It's not the exact replica of the world that God intended it to be. God created a perfect world where everything was as God intended it to be. God and man enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another in the garden. Man and nature, creation, enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another. No such thing as tornadoes ripping through people's neighborhoods. No earthquakes. No hurricanes. No wildfires. Man and woman lived in perfect harmony with one another. Can somebody say hallelujah? not the way it is today, is it? And not just man and woman, just mankind in general. Not living in harmony with one another. That's the world that God created. But when Adam fell into sin and failed to reflect the image of God in all of its fullness, it plunged God's good world into the dark abyss of sin and the consequences thereof that we, we live under today. The world is imprisoned by the curse of Adam. Our world was forever marred and cursed by the sin of Adam. All of creation groans. All of creation, every single bit of it groans, including our present bodies. When I wake up in the morning and I'm sore and I'm tired and my bones are aching, that's a direct result. The sin of Adam. This is why the resurrection is necessary. Someone had to reverse Adam's curse upon this world. Someone had to reverse the effects of sin and death upon mankind. Someone had to reverse the effects of this fallen world. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? Who was that man? Who could do it? It was the second Adam, the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. That's why he came. That's why he left the glory and perfection of heaven. God took on human flesh. He left it all to come to this earth to live a perfect and a sinless life, to do what the first Adam failed to do, and to do what you and I could never do. And at the end of His earthly life, Jesus then offered His body on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, and then was raised to life again so that all who trust and believe receive forgiveness of sin, the promise of everlasting life. And a life lived in a new, resurrected body in the presence of God for all eternity, so that we might fully and finally bear the image of God as God intended us to do. That's why a bodily resurrection is necessary. The second Adam came to undo the curse of the first Adam. Beloved, I want you to behold the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. Jesus Christ is the only imperishable one. But He became perishable so that we who are perishable might become imperishable. Jesus, the glorious one, he experienced the dishonor of the cross so that we, the dishonorable, might experience glory. Jesus, the all-powerful One, the great I Am, the Creator God of this universe, He became weak 
so that the weak might become powerful. Jesus, who deserved life, He experienced death so that those of us who deserve death might experience life and have it to the full. Somebody say Amen. Amen. Jesus, the Man of Heaven, made Himself a man of the earth so that the men of earth might become men of heaven. And after all of that, He died on the cross so all of that might be a reality. Then He rose to life again in a supernatural human body. And He promises to give this body to all who are willing to come to Him by simple and abiding faith. Believing that Jesus Christ, when He died on that cross, died in your place to sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life again. All glory and all honor be unto Him. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You so much for the gift of your son Jesus that you yourself came to rescue us came to undo what we had done to your wonderful and good creation thank you for that what an amazing gift it is Lord, I pray that for those of us who are here this morning who are, who are believers in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would we just let the truth of all of that just sink in. So that we would live for You and live for You alone. And we would seek to bring honor and glory to You in all that we are and all that we do as Your people. That we would live as united people, the body of Christ, for your glory, so that others may know who you are, the truth of who you are, and what you have done for them. Pray that we would be filled with hearts full of joy and thanksgiving in response to who you are and what you've done for us. For those who can hear my voice this morning who've never fully or truly trusted in you. I pray that they would see the truth of who you are. Pray that they would see the great hope of the resurrection here through the preaching of your word this morning. Pray that you would draw them to yourself, open their eyes, that they may see, that they would come to you by faith and receive forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. These things I pray in Jesus' wonderful in precious name. Amen. I ask you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. Are we singing Victory in Jesus? Wow. That's my favorite song. So I might stand down here and sing it loud for all to hear. It's a great song. If you believe everything I just told you, you need to sing the song very loudly and very proudly. If there's anyone here this morning, you want to respond to what was just communicated to you. You want to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I would invite you to do it. And if you want to talk with me more about that after the service, come up and see me. And we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. But if God is speaking to you, and you've never made a personal decision to trust in Jesus Christ, don't wait. 
Don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. Never guaranteed another moment on this earth. Whatever's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.